Welcome to the serialized audiobook Nocturnal by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. This novel contains adult situations, violence, and is meant for mature audiences. Nocturnal is available in print, ebook, and unabridged ad free audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash nocturnal. Chapter 32 Home Sweet Home Chief Amy Zhao pulled into her garage. She came out of the car with her Sig Sauer up and at the ready, sweeping the barrel in a 360-degree arc around the garage. Nothing. No one had ever threatened her family before. No angry gangsters trying to get her to back off. No drug lord's promise of revenge. Not even some thug receiving a sentence of twenty to life, looking at her and saying, You're going to pay. Nothing. Not until today. She couldn't quite draw in a full breath. Her chest seemed compressed, constricted. Over the course of her career, she'd been shot three times in the line of duty. Shot at more times than that and yet she had never felt this terrified. The garage's interior door led into the kitchen. She heard a movie playing in the living room. She moved as silently as she could, not really knowing why, hoping Rex and his creatures were dumb enough to be overconfident. Maybe she could sneak up on them and end this quick. She heard something else. Her daughter, Tabs, crying softly. If they hurt you, baby... If they laid a hand on you, I'll kill them where they stand. Amy Zhao moved into the kitchen. Finding it empty, she followed the sound of crying into the living room, the barrel of her pistol leading the way. Her husband was on his knees, a gag tightly wrapped around his head and mouth, his hands tied behind his back. On Jack's left stood a whimpering, gagged tabs, her face streaked with tears, her arms wrapped in a death clutch around a teddy bear. On his right stood Murr, head tilted down, eyes glaring out from beneath her thick black hair. Murr was also gagged, but she didn't really look scared. Her expression reeked of anger and hatred. Standing behind Amy's family. Monsters. Two of them. The first had short brown fur and a face like a dog. He was so big his head seemed to reach up to the ceiling. His bottom jaw skewed to the right and his long pink tongue hung down off the left side. He wore flower-print Bermuda shorts and nothing else, save for a heavy, dirty blanket draped around his shoulders. He held a stockless, drum-fed automatic shotgun, an armsel striker, in his left hand. He was so big he made the bulky weapon look like a pistol. The shotgun was pointed at the back of Tab's head. The other monster had a snake face and the girth of a bodybuilder, most of that bulk hidden beneath another ratty blanket. He wore jeans, work boots, and a blue San Jose Shark sweatshirt that strained at the seams. He had a gun, too, a forty-four automag, the muzzle hovering less than an inch from Murr's temple. In between the two hulking nightmares, standing as calmly as you please behind her bound and gagged husband, was Rex Depravdichuk. Amy knew instantly that this boy was completely in charge. She pointed her Sig Sauer directly at his face. They're going to drop those guns and get out of my house. Tell them to do it now, Rex, or you're going to die. 
Rex smiled. It was a pleasant smile, tolerant, but not quite condescending. The kind a nice kid gives to adults he thinks are okay, but still way uncool. Then both your daughters will have their brains blown all over your living room carpet, he said. Put down the gun, Mrs. Zhao. Amy realized her hand was shaking. With a flick of her wrist and a pull of the trigger, she could kill the brown-furred one, then maybe get a snapshot at the snake man. But could she do that before either of them fired, murdering her beautiful girls? And would her aim be dead on if she couldn't even keep her hands still? In a hostage situation, you were never, ever supposed to give up your weapon. If she did that, she had no power. Rex sighed. He seemed bored. <sighs> Mrs. Zhao, just put it down. The dog-faced man pressed the shotgun barrel to the back of Tabs's head. She cried louder. Her little body shook with sobs. She's just a baby. Don't hurt my baby. Amy lowered her weapon. Rex pointed to a spot in front of Jack. Right there, please. Don't do it. Don't give up your weapon. Don't do it. Amy tossed the Sig Sauer. It hit the carpet with a light thud. The boy calmly walked around Tabs, picked up the pistol, then walked back behind her family to once again stand between the two monsters. Amy was naked, helpless. What do you want? Rex grinned and nodded slightly, an expression that said, I really want to help you out. Tell me where Savior is, he said. Then. I want the names of everyone who knows about Marie's children. Finally, I want to arrange a meeting with those people. She couldn't give the boy Savior's location. They'd attack him, kill him. And what would they do to the other people who knew about Marie's children? Rich Verdi, Sean Robertson, Jesse Shero, the mayor, Brian and Pookie, Dr. Metz, Robin Hudson. Amy couldn't put those people in danger. No one knows but me, she said. She had to buy time, get word to Brian, maybe, see if he could move Erickson to another location. And Savior checked out of the hospital this morning. I don't know where he went after that. The boy's grin faded. He sighed and shook his head. A put-upon, exasperated teenage killer could decide if her family lived or died. Choose, he said. Choose what? The boy spread his hands, the gesture taking in Amy Zhao's daughters and her husband. Choose which one dies. Amy's throat tightened. She tried to speak, but nothing came out. Why had she given up her weapon? Why? Mrs. Zhao, we're wasting time. Choose. I... No. Please, don't kill anyone. Rex shook his head. It's too late for that. You can either choose one, or I can choose two. Her vision blurred briefly before a hot tear streaked down her cheek, leaving a cool tingling in its wake. She saw no doubt in Rex's eyes. No, no, please. Kill me instead. Let them go. Rex held up a hand, palm toward her, fingers pointed to the ceiling. I'm going to count down from five, he said. San Francisco General. The words rushed out of her mouth. Savior is there. I know which room. 
The boy nodded. That's great, Mrs. Zhao. But you already made me tell you I was going to kill one. I can't go back on my word. Choose. But I told you. I know access codes to the building. Five. No, wait. I can get you those names. He bent his thumb in. Four? Monsters with guns counting down her family, her daughters, the love of her life. He bent his pinky in, trapped it with his thumb. Three. This can't be happening. This can't be happening. Don't kill my babies. This can't be happening. Look, she said. I swear I can give you what you want. He bent his ring finger in, trapped that with his thumb as well. Two. Amy's gaze snapped back and forth across her family. Tabs, then Jack, then Myrrh, then Jack, then Tabs. He bent in his middle finger, leaving only his pointer extended. One. Oh, Jesus Christ, how can this be happening? Not my daughters, not my daughters. Zero. Jack. I choose Jack. Amy screamed. Jack's eyes went wide with terror. Or was that anger, betrayal? He started to scream, but she couldn't understand him through the gag. Rex reached up and patted the dog face's shoulder. Pierre, do what the chief says. Chief Zhao, if you make a move, one of your daughters will join your husband, so you better stand real still. The snake face reached down and picked up Myrrh with one arm, pinning her arms to her sides. She looked like a frail little doll. The monster pressed the forty-four's barrel under her chin, pushing her head back a bit. Now the girl was scared. Her wide eyes betrayed genuine fear. Pierre's right hand grabbed her husband by the top of his head, big brown fingers wrapping down across her jack's cheeks. Effortlessly, the monster lifted him right up off the ground. Jack started to kick, but his feet were bound as well as his hands. His body thrashed as he fought to break free. The boy stepped back to avoid Jack's heels. Pierre never moved the shotgun from the back of Tabs' head. Tabs shook with sobs, but she made no move to run. Pierre lifted Jack higher. The monster tilted his dog head to the left, so the skewed jaws opened horizontally rather than vertically. The long white teeth glinted colored plasma reflections from the TV. Pierre slowly bit down on Jack's neck. There was the briefest second as the teeth penetrated the skin. Then came the blood. Thin, spraying jets splashed against Pierre's face, splashing on tabs, falling on the carpet. Jack's body lurched madly. His knees whipped up, then drove down. His bound feet kicked back and forth. His shoulders twisted as arms fought against ropes that would not break. Amy heard herself screaming, heard words torn by panic and denial and anguish. Pierre let go of Jack's head, but the man didn't fall. His ravaged neck remained tightly pinched in the skewed jaws. Pierre shook his head like a dog with a chew toy. The gag blocked most of Jack's gurgling screams. Amy heard a cracking sound. Pierre paused and drew in a deep breath through his long nose. As he did, Jack looked at her, eyes pleading for help. The monster gave one final, 
hard shake. Jack's head sailed across the room. Trailing blood, it bounced once on the lazy boy, then came to rest on its side, eyes facing Amy. The pupils dilated, as if Jack saw her, recognized her. His lids closed once, then slowly opened. Dead, unmoving eyes stared out. The girl's screams brought Amy back. She found herself lying on the carpet. She'd passed out. For the briefest of moments, she allowed herself to imagine it had all been a dream. But then she saw Tabs, gagged and screaming, her father's blood matting her hair and dripping down her face. Amy saw the monster holding an automatic shotgun to Tabs' head, a monster soaked with that same blood. Amy saw Murr tucked under the snake man's huge arm. Murr kicked and fought, but Snake Man just ignored it. And in the middle of it all, Amy saw a smiling teenage boy. There, Rex said. That's all done. Now, I'm going to ask you more questions. Unless you want me to make you choose again, you'll answer them. Amy nodded and kept on nodding, over and over and over again. Chapter 33 Handiwork Rich Verdi was just about maxed out. Too many years of this bullshit. Time to start thinking about retirement. Someplace warm. Someplace with rich divorcees and enough booze to drown out any memory of this fucking city. Boca Raton, maybe. The wind whipped at a blue tarp tied up inside a cluster of Golden Gate Park's gnarled Australian tea trees. The trees were spooky enough all by themselves, even without the corpses that had been found hidden among the twisted, contorted trunks. Rich and several uniforms stood just outside the tarp. He didn't want to be in there, not with those bodies. He'd had his fill of symbol killings, more than enough for one lifetime. Baldwin Metz was on the way. The Silver Eagle would get this body out of here lickety-split. That was the process. That was how things were done. Rich just didn't want to be part of that process anymore. He wondered how he was going to tell Amy. How would she take it? Well, that wasn't his problem. She could go cry on the shoulder of that needle-dick husband of hers. Rich had put in his time. Thirty years' worth of time, fuck you very much. He didn't know Amy a goddamn thing. This latest killing, though, it was a problem. The media had got to the bodies first. Pictures of two corpses with missing hands would be all over the front page of the Chronicle. Hell, it was probably already up on the paper's website. Whoever this killer was, he had struck twice in as many days. Yesterday morning, the first set of bodies had turned up at Ocean Beach. And now, less than 24 hours later, a second set. All four victims showed the same M.O. Broken necks, missing hands, and gnawed feet. Gnawed feet, for fuck's sake. And, of course, someone had given the bodies a golden shower. Nah, not Boca Raton. Maybe Tahiti. The symbol had been found at both sites. He'd been at this game long enough to know it was a new killer, not the same one who had whacked Paul Maloney and those Boyko kids. He could just tell. The only break was that this time the symbol had been carved into the back of one of the tea trees, and the media had missed it. All this, and Amy had yet to call him back. So unlike her. 
Robertson was on the way, though. Sean could run things. Hopefully he'd get here before the rest of the media did. A uniform walked down the dirt path, then ducked under a line of yellow police tape and approached. Inspector Verdi, more media is showing up, he said. We've got CBS4 setting up now. Cron TV's van just pulled up into the park, and the ABC7 chopper is closing in. Just keep them all back, Rich said. The last fucking thing we need is for them to start asking questions about a serial killer, you know? Might be too late for that, sir. I think they already have a name for him. They asked me if I knew anything about the handyman. The handyman? Yeah, Tahiti. That would do the trick. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Island in Frigid Lake Superior. A fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 34 Aggie Gets Out Aggie James wasn't sure how long he'd been following Hillary. She had led him out of the bassinet room and back into the dark arena maze. Many twists and turns later, she'd started up a narrow set of rough steps cut into the wall. Carrying the baby, Aggie had moved so carefully, keeping his left shoulder against the wall as he made sure his right foot didn't slip off the uneven edges. Those steps rose forty feet to the spectator ledge. She had led him into a narrow tunnel at the back of the ledge, just a few feet away from the last step. Aggie had turned for a last look down below before going in. The ship was off to his right, back end buried in the cavern wall, front end pointing across the oblong cavern. There had been activity on the ship's deck. 
Hillary's people preparing for some kind of an event, maybe? They'd been following the tunnel for fifteen minutes, maybe thirty, he wasn't sure. This time, at least, she had a battery-powered Coleman lantern to light the way. She seemed to know the location of every rock, every turn, every jagged outcropping of rusted metal or moldy wood. He knew this because those things caught him, poked him, snagged him while she avoided them all with a subtle turn, a simple twist. He cradled the knit bag in his right arm. Inside, the baby boy slept. Aggie felt the child's faint warmth through the fabric. The boy weighed almost nothing. Aggie could carry him forever if he had to. Finally, Hillary stopped and turned. Move carefully here, she said. Step only where I step. She set the lantern down and stepped aside so Aggie could see a small stone forest. Fifteen or so piles of stacked rocks rose from floor to ceiling. No, not piles. Columns. The columns supported big slabs of concrete, chunks of old brick wall, and blackened squares of timber. This strange ceiling ran the final fifteen feet of tunnel, right up to where it dead-ended at a giant, dirty sheet of plywood. It didn't take a genius to see the plan. Make any column fall, and the whole kitten caboodle would collapse filling the tunnel with tons of dirt and rock. Hillary gestured to the ceiling. You understand? Aggie nodded. She slid around the first column. Aggie watched her. She looked like an old lady, but didn't move like one. Her agility and balance complemented the ridiculous strength Aggie already knew she possessed. With each step, she wiggled her shoe in the dirt leaving a clear footprint to show the safe path. She slid around the second column, then waved him on. Holding the baby-filled bag to his chest, Aggie followed in Hillary's footsteps. He took his time. She didn't seem to mind. As he passed the third column, he felt something, some kind of trembling beneath his feet. An earthquake? The rumbling increased. With it came an echoing, grinding roar. How could there be an earthquake now when he'd almost made it out? Aggie held the baby close, looked up, and waited for death. The rumbling subsided. The roar faded away. Hillary was laughing silently, again waving him on. Two minutes later, they'd passed all the columns save for one. The final column was less than two feet from the piece of plywood. Hillary grabbed the plywood by a pair of metal handles screwed into it, then slowly slid it aside, revealing a hole perhaps three feet wide. The hole led into a deep blackness. Aggie felt the tender kiss of something he hadn't known for days. A breeze. Fresh air. Well, not fresh. It smelled of metal and grease. But it was far fresher than the still air he'd breathed since he woke up in the white dungeon. He again felt the rumbling. Something big, something mechanical, something getting closer. Hillary held up a hand, palm out. The gesture said, stay there, don't move. Aggie waited. She turned off the Coleman, leaving a blackness that made the walls close in. The sound grew louder. The tunnel rumbled. Suddenly there was a flash of light, the roar of metal wheels on metal tracks. A muni train.
He was in the San Francisco subway. Aggie tried to calm his breathing. He couldn't allow himself to believe this was it, that he was finally getting out. The Muni train passed, its roar a fading echo. Hillary turned the lantern back on. The columns hadn't collapsed. Now you go, she said. Do you remember what I told you? Aggie nodded. She was giving him life. He would honor his promise to her. No way was he going to wind up as a groom. No way. He turned to hand her the baby so he could duck out of the hole, then paused. A sudden, all-powerful twang of anxiety ripped through him. What if Hillary took the baby and ran? She waited. I'm going to set the baby down, he said. Can you step back? She smiled, nodded, then backed away. Aggie gently rested the bag on the ground, then stepped through the small hole and out of the death trap tunnel. He stood on a narrow ledge that ran perpendicular to the tracks. He bent, reached back, and was again holding the boy. Aggie clutched the bag tightly. The anxiety faded away. Far down the tunnel to his right, he saw the light of a station. Hillary worked the plywood shut behind him. Aggie's eyes slowly adjusted to the darkness. The hole he had crawled from was gone. All he could see were the hexagonal tiles of the subway's walls. The plywood was a tile-covered plug that perfectly fit the hole, sliding home as sure as a puzzle piece. If he hadn't just come through there, he would never have known it existed. But that didn't matter anymore. He had survived. Aggie kept his right hand on the tile wall as he walked. He didn't know which rail was the third rail, the one that might electrocute him and the boy. It was probably the one in the middle, but he wasn't taking any chances. He drew closer to the opening into the station. The tracks led out of the tunnel's darkness and alongside the station platform. He saw a few people up on the platform. The trains were still running, so it wasn't early in the morning. Aggie carefully stepped off the ledge and over the tracks, moving to the platform side of the tunnel. He slid along with his back to the wall. He felt a hint of a rumble. Another train was coming. He had to move fast. The people on the platform would see him, but he didn't have a choice. He was still draped in the stinking blanket. That's how he would get past those people, by just looking, acting, and smelling like the homeless bums who wandered down to the Muni stations all the time. He reached the end of the tunnel. The platform came up to his chest. He lifted the knit purse containing the boy and gently set it on the platform's warning stripe of yellow. Aggie crawled up. People turned to look, saw what he was, then immediately turned away. Aggie picked up the bag. He held the baby with one arm, and with the other, pulled the blanket around them both. His heart hammered in his chest. So close. So close. Aggie saw the brown sign in the white ceiling, the white letters that spelled out Civic Center. He looked at the digital sign that told of the next train and saw that it was 11.15 p.m. He forced himself to walk, not run, toward the escalator that led to the surface. Homeless people didn't run. All he had to do was keep up the illusion, and everyone would ignore him. Illusion. How odd to think of it that way. Wasn't he a homeless person after all? No, not anymore.
Aggie had done his time in the gutter. He'd lost years mourning, feeling sorry for himself, feeling sorry for his losses. He'd given up and tuned out. That time was over. He was alive. His wife and daughter were gone. Nothing could bring them back. He should have died down in the tunnels, in the white room, but he had a second chance and he wasn't going to screw it up. He had a responsibility now, a responsibility to protect the child he held in his arms. He had sworn to find this child a home. Why don't I just raise the kid? He realized that hidden thought had been lurking at the edge of his mind ever since he looked in the bag and saw the tiny baby. You were a parent once, a good parent. That robbery wasn't your fault. There was nothing you could do. A second chance. A second chance to get things right. Aggie felt full of hope, full of a sudden and overpowering love for life. He moved toward the escalator that would lead him to the surface. And then the baby cried. Not a soft cry, not a muffled, I just woke up cry, but rather a full-blown, I am not at all happy cry, loud, piercing. The dozen or so people on the platform who had gone out of their way to not look at him now turned to stare. The baby screamed again. The kid was probably hungry. This was just a baby being a baby. But Aggie knew what it looked like. A shabby, smelly bum with a screaming child hidden somewhere beneath a filthy blanket. Aggie saw hands reach into pockets and purses, then come out holding cell phones. He turned back to the escalator. A woman stepped toward him. Stop! Aggie took off, his newish boots thumping out a staccato drumbeat on the escalator's metal steps. He heard and felt similar pounding behind him, the heavy steps of men. The first escalator took him up to the station's main floor. One more escalator, and he'd be out on the streets. There were more people up here, heading home from bars or from late nights at work. Get out of my way! Aggie ran, carrying the baby bag in both arms. His legs felt weak. He was already exhausted. Stop him! The men behind him screamed. Most of the people in front of him quickly got out of the way. But one man, a kid of no more than twenty, stepped in front of him. Aggie slowed, then tried to cut left. His foot landed on his blanket. The blanket slid across the polished floor, and his foot flew out from under him. In the split second it took him to reach the ground, his only thought was to protect the baby. The back of Aggie's head cracked against the marble, and everything went black. Chapter 35 Date Night The faint but beautiful sounds of a plinky piano echoed from inside of Mommy's cabin. There were no lights in there, just darkness and music. People lined the arena's ledges, holding torches that flickered like big stars against the cavern's blackness. Alone, Rex stood on the ship's ruined deck. He held a wicker basket with a present for Mommy. Tonight, he would become a man. Everything was happening so fast. He and Pierre and Sly had brought the chief of police and her daughters back home. The chief had given up a bunch of names. They'd even printed pictures of those criminals on Chief Zhao's computer so the soldiers would know if they had the right people. 
The chief's husband was cooking in the stew. Most of him, anyway. His head was in the basket. Mommy liked brains. As soon as Rex finished this ceremony with Mommy, he and Sly were going to plan how to use Chief Zao to round up the criminals. Firstborn had allowed the bullies to live, but Rex would not. Once those who knew of Marie's children were gone, Rex's people would become even more of a secret. Hillary wanted the people to spread, and so did Rex. She said the only way for that to happen was to make new queens. The only way to make a new queen, she said, was for a king to mate with an old queen. Rex was the king, and that was that. If he was the king, though, didn't he need a crown? Maybe someone could make one for him. The people had built all these amazing tunnels. Surely they could make a kick-ass crown. He felt so nervous. He'd never had sex before. Would he get it right? Two white-robed men walked out of Mommy's cabin. They stood on either side of the door, waiting. The one on the left wore a devil mask. The one on the right wore a mask that looked like Osama bin Laden. They both waved Rex forward. Up on the ledge, all the people waited for him to enter. Rex turned slowly, looking up at the ledge, at the torchlight-illuminated faces of his people. Everyone was here. Now was the time to make Firstborn understand that all of this belonged to Rex, and Rex alone. I have made a decision, he shouted. His voice echoed off the arena's walls. I am not going to hide in the caverns and let other people go fight. I'll fight with them. I'll lead like a real king. But that means Savior might get me, or the cops might, or someone else. I've decided who will rule if anything should happen to me. I named Sly as my successor. Rex heard applause. Not as much as he would have thought, though. Didn't everyone like Sly? Sly is also a fighter, Rex shouted. If he and I both get killed, then Hillary will be our ruler. He hadn't seen Hillary around, but she was probably somewhere up on that ledge. Rex knew it was a good decision. Firstborn hated Sly, so maybe he'd try to kill both Sly and Rex. But Firstborn had saved Hillary once. Would he kill her as well? Was his need for power that great? The announcement was done. That meant no more stalling. Rex had to go into that cabin and be with Mommy. A smell tickled Rex's nose. He sniffed lightly, then deeper. What was that? He turned toward Mommy's cabin. He sniffed some more. His face suddenly felt hot. Another step, and he stumbled a little on a loose board. He managed to catch his balance before he fell. Wouldn't that be embarrassing, to fall in front of everyone? Rex stopped. He looked down. He had the boner of all boners. Wow, did his face feel hot. And then a deep voice came from inside the cabin. Mommy's voice. Venez à moi, mon roi. He didn't understand her words. He didn't care what she said. Didn't care about anything anymore but that smell in his nose 
and what waited for him there in the darkness. Rex walked through the cabin door. You have been listening to Nocturnal by Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. The Nocturnal audiobook was directed and engineered by Corey Young. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.